Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, uh, it's been about three weeks since my last podcast from here in Salon One, but during that time, we've received a donation from Ryan Q, along with a major donation by Ed D., and uh, that has encouraged me to buy a new cassette recorder in an effort to, uh, well, eliminate that pesty clicking sound on the rest of the McKenna tapes that I still have left to digitize. And I'm sure all of us here in the salon are going to appreciate your generous donation, Ed. Also, six people have now become my patrons through my Patreon.com account, and those fine souls are Dennis H., Robin L., Jessa F., Daryl C., Tim C., and Charles B. And uh, thanks to some of the suggestions that my patrons have been making, this new book that I'm working on, I believe, is becoming significantly better than it was going to be without their input. So thank you one and all for your encouragement and your support. Now, for today's program, I'm going to play a Palenque Norte lecture that Paul Stamets gave at Burning Man, either in uh, <laughs> 2015 or 2016. Unfortunately, uh, my notes on the tape aren't very clear, and uh, after I play this talk, I'll tell you how I came across this recording. While I'm sure that most of our fellow saloners are familiar with Paul's work, for any newcomers here, let me set the stage as best I can. As we all know, Sasha Shulgin, in my opinion at least, was the greatest chemist who lived during my own life. Well, also in my own opinion, Paul Stamets is to mycology what Sasha was to chemistry. And I don't think that there's any question about the fact that Paul Stamets has done more to further our knowledge of what may be the most important life form on this planet. And I'm including us humans in that, in case you're wondering. And after listening to Paul's talk right now, I suspect that most people are going to agree with me. Paul titled this presentation, Biodiversity is Biosecurity. And I would add as a subtitle, not simply magic mushrooms, but rather the magic of mushrooms, or better yet, the magic of mycelium. Now, Paul used quite a few slides to illustrate this talk, but after previewing it, I think that, the, well, the majority of this talk isn't going to be too hard to follow, even without the slides. And I also think that you're going to be really surprised by much of the information that Paul provides in this talk. So let's join him now. The subject of my talk is really biodiversity is, bio, uh, bio, uh, biodiversity is biosecurity. And we are here today because of many microorganisms that have been involved in quorums or guilds that have come together and through the course of evolution, you know, these species, including ourselves, have evolved. Well, understanding biodiversity today is so important for our future survival. We have entered into 6X, the sixth greatest extinction event known in the history of life on this planet. But this, this extinction event is not caused by an asteroid or some great celestial event. It's caused by an organism, by us. And not only are we the cause of this extinction event, but we're likely to be its victim. There's approximately 8.3 million species on this planet. We're losing, a, uh, at best guesstimates, around 30,000 species per year. 
you do the math, you know, in a hundred years, we're going to be losing uh, a, more than a third of the biodiversity of the species on this planet that got us here today. So this is like rivets in an airplane, and how many rivets in an airplane uh, must be lost or will be lost before you have a cataclysmic collapse of the ecosystem? And, and I think that's something that we face uh, today. So I, I, there's a great Bruce Willis movie with asteroids coming to hit the Earth, you know, and all the nations of the, of the Earth gather together and marshal their resources to, to blow up or, or deflect the asteroid before it makes impact. Well, that's great because, that, you know, it's a great movie, but the extinction event that we're experiencing is happening over several hundred years. And we under, unfortunately suffer uh, from a form of ecological myopia. We look at the, at the environment and, you know, our relationships, unfortunately, in the limited viewscape of our lifespan, which is 75 to 85 years of age, uh, 85 years. And so, I, in a sense, I wish this extinction event was happening much more quickly because then, then people would see how serious it is. But because of our politicians, because of, of the economic interests that govern the world right now, the short traders, the millisecond trading on Wall Street, the grab for money, money is power, and unfortunately it is uh, disempowering a lot of the voices on this planet that need to be heard and a lot of these technologies that need to be brought to the forefront. So I hope this is the beginning of a mycological revolution. Uh, I am revolutionary in, 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 at heart and in my spirit, uh, but I am also a peaceful warrior. So we have to be able to bring this new knowledge to the forefront in a peaceful and deliberate fashion, but I also believe it has to be sustainable. And so in our economic system, it has to be economically sustainable, which means it has to be profitable in order to be delivered to the market. Because everyone who is idealistic, myself included, I'm 60 years of age, I turned 60 you know, a few weeks ago, and my idealism has been tempered by the reality that if you cannot make it economically practicable, then it's not going to be ecologically sustainable. So that's the harsh reality that we face. We can't live in a, uta in a utopian avatar-like uh, you know, environment without having some you know, very important considerations as, as to the, the economics. So I am happy that uh, the AAAS, the American Association of Advancement of Science, appointed me as an invention ambassador. This is the most prestigious scientific organization in the world. I was frankly shocked. Uh, I, I thought it was spam. I got this email. I, I got this email, and I, I've been working on a, on a chapter for a new book I'm writing on how to survive 6X. And I wrote this chapter. It's eight pages long. It's sort of a, a macro view about how we can utilize fungi to be able to survive 6X. So I finished that article, and then later that night, I'm looking at my emails, and a AAAS came in. I thought it was an advertisement or something like this. And I was wanted to throw it in the trash, and I, I clicked on it, and they go, you've been nominated to be an invention ambassador. And so I went, jeez, oh, I don't have time. I'm tired, a little stoned, you know. So, so I, I clicked on the link, you know, and I looked at it, and, and thanks to Google and Chrome, autofill, you know, I put in P, and boom, everything autofilled. And then at the very end, they said, and you need to make your case. We require an, an eight-page article from you, you know, and it's just due tomorrow. So I went, attached, send. <laughs> and then a series of meetings occurred. I was heavily vetted. I had to go through a gauntlet of many other scientists that asked very critical questions. They talked to my supporters, to my critics. And then out of 250 or so people that were nominated, uh, seven of us 
were appointed invention ambassadors, including the founder, uh, the discoverer of digital photography, which is kind of kind of big. So it's a, I have great other scientists, and so we go around the country uh, trying to inform the public the importance of science uh, and 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 bridging the gap between uh, the, the importance of invention, science, and discovery, and how to affect uh, affect people's lives in a positive way. So I'd like to acknowledge my other ambassadors here and AAAS for, for that acknowledgement. So I also want to give credit to my teachers. I like to do this in every lecture because I think it's very important. I came into the field of mycology when I was about 18 years of age. I was foraying when I was 15 or so, but I got pretty serious when I was 17 to 18 years of age. And uh, Dr. Michael Bug is my pr professor at the Evergreen State College. Uh, some of you know him in the audience. Um, Daniel Stunts, a professor emeritus, University of Washington in Seattle. Uh, uh, Alexander Smith, University of Michigan. And Catherine Skates from Post Falls, Idaho. These people were very kind to me. And, it's very, and their kindness and generosity is why I'm here today speaking to you. Um, now, all the more interesting that these scientists took me under their wing because they were somewhat politically conservative by today's measures. Uh, because when I showed up there, this is what I looked like. <laughs> so I don't have as much of that hair today. But um, nevertheless, um, there was a surge of interest in psilocybin mushrooms. I became. Uh, I started uh, looking for them. I taxonomically studied that group. Uh, I got involved and discovered several new species in the genus Psilocybe. I think I have four four psilocybin species that I've named so far that that were that were new to science at that time. Um, and so there was a you know at the time of Charles Manson and the hippies and there's a tremendous polarization. Those of you who did not live through the 60s and 70s, you really got a pretty much a free ride <laughs> on the backs of a lot of us uh, because there was a revolution going on in this country. Uh, and there were road warriors, thousands and thousands of people were hitchhiking across country. There's a whole tribal movement. I hitchhiked, hitchhiked across country 13 times. And, um, and there's a whole anti-war pro-environmental movement uh, that was surging across the country under great adversity. Uh, the, the law enforcement, the cops, and the whole society were against us. So when I showed up looking like this, saying, I'm interested in doing the taxonomy of psilocybin mushrooms, they said, sure you are. <laughs> so, anyhow. Um, so, but this, I want to give credit where credit is due. I don't know if we can alter this screen just a little bit here. I, I make my slides a little tight. Um, but here is a Golgi a monkey. The diet his diet is up to 35% fungi, mushrooms, particularly a mushroom called Ascopoliparus. It lives in the Amazon, and it consumes more than 12 times its body weight per year. Now, I bring this to your attention because this is one primate of 23 primates. We are primates, so we're one of those 23 that has, from an evolutionary point of view, figured out which mushrooms are edible, which ones are poisonous. Now think of that. If there's 23 primates out there, including one that eats more than 12 times its body weight, in fungi, that speaks to a long ancestral knowledge of the understanding of forest fungi. We were all forest people. For millions of years, we live in intimate contact with the forest ecosystem. 
12,000, 10,000 years ago, agriculture was invented and deforestation began as we started cutting down the woods to plant, you know, uh, vegetables, etc. And that deforestation, unfortunately, has accelerated and now we're we're well past the tipping point. And the deforestation now, I think, is one of the primary causes of many of the problems that we face today. So I bring this up because a good dear friend of mine, Terrence McKenna, and many of you knew, knew Terrence and know of Terrence's work, Terrence and I became very good friends the last five years of his life. And if Terrence is sitting here right now, I tell him the same thing. Terrence, 95% of the stuff that you say is total bullshit. You know? <laughs> but you say it so well. You know? So Terrence had most greatest command of the English language of anyone that I've ever met. And he was extremely persuasive and fun and entertaining to listen to. But as one critic said, and I do agree with this critic, if 5% of what Terrence said is true, then his contribution you know, cannot be denied. And one of the things that Terrence presented was the stoned ape hypothesis. He calls it a stoned ape, a stoned ape theory. I call it a hypothesis because we don't have enough facts to make it a theory. But the stoned ape hypothesis postulates, and first by Roland, uh, Roland Fisher in 1970, first published this, that under the influence of psilocybin, your ability uh, to see and hear uh, uh, is substantially improved. And he did this in lab tests, basically. And Terrence postulated that, and I think he had it wrong, because he said, after the last, last ice age, uh, as our ancestors you know, were tracking ungulates across the prairie, well, if you're a hunter, some people are hunters in this audience, I'm sure, what do you look for? You look for tracks, on the, you know, footprints. You look for scat, you look for poop. So in the savanna areas of Africa, as you are looking and trying to uh, track animals, you would en- end up finding manure, dung, and these large mushrooms, Psilocybe cubensis, would be growing out of the dung. This is from elephant dung. So lots of of ungulates and other animals like elephants uh, are, 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 are breeding grounds for Psilocybe cubensis. So you're hungry, you're with your clan, you're tracking animals, you can't find them, you find these big bodacious mushrooms, you're hungry. The majority of primates are grub eaters, they actually go after grub, larvae, and they eat them as a source of protein. So looking into the dung for grub and encountering Psilocybes. I think it's something that would happen. And I wanted to present to you the concept. This has probably happened for millions of years, hundreds of thousands of times. Imagine, your clan, you're, you're going across the prairies, you're hungry, you all would share in eating these mushrooms coming from the dung. You're catapulted into this incredible experience, fractal ge- geometry for the first time in your life. You know, you're bonding, you're laughing, you know, you're, you're hugging. You have this, this spiritual experience that brings the clan together. Well, happens, and I, you know, because of epigenesis, that is going to have a selective expression on your, on your genes, and your gene expressions are going to be influenced by those experiences repetitively hundreds of thousands of times. And so I think that the stoned ape hypothesis has uh, good merit. Well, there's other reasons for thinking that it has good merit. An article came out uh, just about a, a year and a half ago on the effects of psilocybin causing neurogenesis. Well, 
creating new neurons. And in conclusion of the article, it says this the psilocybin induced the extinction of a conditioned fear response to life-threatening events. And then um, Roland Griffin at John Hopkins has published a number of, of, of articles, one on the, on the mystical type experience occasioned by the use of psilocybin. Well, let's take those two, those two facts, now substantiated by science, that you can lose fear conditioning from life-threatening events, and you can have a mystical experience. Well, so I put this together because I had this epiphany this morning. I said, well, that means then that psilocybin induces courage and kindness. Now think of that. If your primate clans have this experience and the leader of the clan is, is the mycologically astute individual who's training the other ones how to identify and use these mushrooms, then I think those are characteristics that lead to leadership. So I suggest to you, and I've never said this in public before, that I think our top leaders at Google, at Microsoft, in government, you know, all over the world, they need to have more courage and more kindness. Therefore, I would encourage all the leaders of the world to engage in psilocybin. <laughs> and I think we need more psilocybin experienced leaders. So um, I think the logic is pretty good, don't you? <laughs> so, okay. So um, the bee shaman figure, it's a silly, the Silianjar Plateau, is 7,000 years ago, 5,000 years BCE. This is the, acti- uh, the, the actual pictograph on the cave. And then Kat uh, Harrison uh, made it uh, clearer in a sense. And this is a second rendition from her drawing. But in the northern Algerian, uh, northern Algeria, the Sicilian Plateau was translated as the Plateau of Running Rivers. Now, because of the Sahara, De- the Sahara Desert, um, you know, this has been deforested, of course, and these mushrooms uh, are, uh, are. There's only been one case of these mushrooms, Psilocybe marii, that's been found in this, loca- in this, in this location or near this location. So, but the intent of the artist is clear, you know, and this is the amazing thing that we know about the histories of our ancestors going back thousands of years, really only through archaeology and through art. And so um, this artist is quite emphatically excited about mushrooms and no, no, no scientist who was involved in reporting these images ever dared to make the statement that these could have been mushrooms. And this is the problem that scientists face, is the fear of being ridiculed. And so if you go out on a limb and you make them extraordinarily strong and, and, and sort of out there statement, then the reputation of the scientists will be forever impaired uh, because they'll be tagged for making these crazy statements. So this speaks to mycophobia, the irrational fear of fungi, and it also has permeated <laughs> academia. And this is something that I think we need to change. <clears throat> so, um, the use of mushrooms, you know, has, has been very well recorded. Hippocrates uh, first mentioned several polypore mushrooms as anti-inflammatories around 440 BCE. Uh, and Dioscorides also mentioned several mushrooms. Um, some of you know about the agaricon mushroom that we focus a lot of our research on. And um, Dioscorides 
was one of the first physicians who mentioned that also uh, uh, about 40 in 55 BCE in the first Materia Medica, the first pharmacopoeia that was recorded on the use of plants and mushrooms for medicinal purposes. And then this is a relief from around 400 years, uh, also BCE, that shows Demeter giving Persephone a mushroom before she goes into the underworld and speaks to the Eleusinian mysteries. Many people have spoken on this. And basically, it's in the Greek mythology, is the origination of the seasons. And Persephone, upon consuming the mushroom, you know, goes into the underworld. And then in the spring, she returns. And that was supposedly the birth of the seasons and how the seasons came about. I'm a mushroom person, and it's really dry here. <laughs> so I'm going to be drinking a lot of water. So this is where my wife, Dusty, and I spend a lot of time in the old-growth forest of Washington State. That's where we live. Um, and the, the old-growth forest is a library to us of strains. And when you look at the number of species of fungi, about 1.5 million species of fungi in the genome of 8.3 million uh, total species on the planet, and about 10% of those are mushroom-forming fungi, about 150,000 species, of which we've identified so far around 14,000 uh, and giving them scientific names. That means less than 10% approximately of the mushroom-forming species that are out there have we actually identified. Um, well, think of that as 14,000 species books in a library. And over the millennia, literally over millions of years, our ancestors have gone into that library of nature, selected out mushroom species, consumed them. Some of them will feed you, some will heal you, some will get you high, and some will kill you. So when Uncle Harry ate that mushroom, oops, he died. Well, we'll avoid that one, right? So our body intellect of knowledge from a cultural point of view expanded over the eons. So from that 14,000 species, if we use that number in the environmental library, our ancestors narrowed down to about 200 species, which are safe, uh, which have interesting properties. And of those 200 species, there's 50 species approximately out of 14,000 that have medicinally very, very interesting properties that are compatible with our microbiome. There's a lot of talk about the microbiomes, but I'll explain how fungi also share in common the compatibility factors of the mushroom's microbiome with our microbiomes is critically important for how well you receive the mushrooms, how well you digest them, your reactions to them. So, you know, we have had a fairly good selection criteria over the eons from hundreds of thousands of empirical scientists, basically, consuming these fungi, learning which ones are edible and which ones are not, and passing that information orally, for the most part, down through the generations. So the Golgi monkey is one primate, but think of the body intellect of that interspecies knowledge groups, because our ancestors no doubt would observe other animals consuming mushrooms and then experiment with them as well. So there's a lateral transfer of knowledge also. Okay, so here's a cross-section of an environment. I'm going to go through this really quickly. Um, there are saprophytic fungi that grow on dead wood. There are endophytic fungi that are virtually inside of trees and the stems and the leaves. 
Um, some great research that's come out uh, by a mycologist by the name of Arnold in particular. There's more than 200 species of endophytic fungi uh, that, can, that can live within a tree as part of this host defensive immunity that's growing symbiotically uh, and, uh, to help the immune system of the, of the tree. Um, and by doing so, it helps the, these fungi survive. There's a mycorrhizal fungi that are in the root zones. And the parasitic fungi, you know, are killing the, the weaker, the plants with the weaker immune systems. So those are four just general groups. Some parasitic fungi can live saprophytically, uh, but there's a pretty clear division between these groups. So an article came out in Science about seven years ago uh, that all plants are part fungus. And so if you meet people who say, I don't like to eat fungi, then tell them to stop eating plants because all plants are part fungi. Now this also segues into botanical medicine research because one has to ask, especially with the alkaloids being produced by, by these fungi, what is the, 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 the extract of a plant, the medicinal properties of that plant, how much is actually due to the endophytic fungi that are being extracted from the plant itself? And so without understanding that contribution, I think we only have part, part of the picture. So some great books that I recommend, Mycorrhizal Symbiosis is the, the root of a pine tree. This is basically the root, and all this is the mycelium. It expands the root zones literally hundreds, if not thousands of times. The mycorrhizal fungi are, are getting uh, a benefit of sugars being secreted by the plants, and then the mycorrhizal fungi are mineralizing uh, rocks and sending essential minerals directly through the roots. So it's a bidirectional a uh, cooperative relationship where the fungi are being rewarded with sugars and uh, uh, whenever they're contributing minerals. And since that many plants are minerally uh, restricted. So uh, this is a really extraordinary article that came out um, on fungal networks that are communicating um, underneath the soil. Now this is something that I, I speculated in my book Mycelium Running over 10 years ago, but a very simple experiment. And what they did is they um, ha ha had bean plants, and there was, uh, and they had four bean plants, and they put them in the common soil. Well, first they put them in, the, in individual pots, and they then had mycorrhizal fungi in the roots, individual pots that were separated. They introduced aphids to the first plant. And when they introduced the aphids, there's an immune response, and the anti-aphids alkaloids being produced by the bean plant to protect the bean plant from being parasitized by the aphids. Well, when they analyzed the leaves of the adjacent plants, they did not upregulate those alkaloids. So they repeated the experiment, and then they joined, they put all those, those four bean plants in common soil, and they let them grow, and they all began, and the mycelium interconnected them. And when they introduced the aphids to their first plant, the three other plants upregulated the expression, expression of alkaloids, and they showed that the first plant that was exposed to aphids via the mycelium in the root zone, information was passed to the adjacent plants to warn them that there's a predator on the horizon. That was the first time scientifically that this was shown. This speaks to the, to the fact the mycelium is a soil, uh, uh, is a, is a, is, 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 there's an internet-based mycelial network that's cross-communicating underground in order to protect the plants that are in the ecosystem. <coughs> Several examples of mycelium here. The mycelium uh, um, produces extracellular droplets or enzymes, 
And in these droplets are all sorts of exotic uh, compounds that is of great interest to me and many of the scientists currently. The mycelium externally digests nutrients. We evolved from fungi about 650 million years ago. There is now a new super kingdom that joins animalia and fungi together called a Pislacanta. And I think 24 scientists published this in the Journal of Eukaryotic Microbiology about six or seven years ago. <laughs> Note to self, if you want to get through peer review, you have about two dozen other scientists co-author the article with you. It's very hard to, for peer reviewers to you know, negate the opinions of 24 other scientists. So, but the, it speaks to the fact that you know, we share a common ancestor with fungi more so than we do with any other kingdom. And the fungi were basically underground and producing nutrients and, and, um, and, and enzymes that are being excreted externally and digest as nutrients externally, then brought in those nutrients needed through the cell walls. We went the route of basically encirculating our nutrients in a cellular membrane, i.e. a sac, and then we produced, uh, we would produce the enzymes to digest food internally within the stomach. In both cases, digestive enzymes are being produced. In both cases, uh, uh, a microbiome of uh, a commensal bacteria are being enlisted to help the digestion process. So here's the mycelium. I was scanning electron microscopists for many years. This is the mycelium. And then under four environmental stimuli, an introduction of water. We all know that because of rain. And with rain, you have evaporation, so you have a drop in temperature, the second one. Um, the third one is that as the ground becomes moist and the mycelium comes up to the surface, it comes to a highly oxygenated environment from a high CO2 environment in the ground. So it, ex exo it exhales carbon dioxide, inhales oxygen. So the oxygen is the third trigger. And the fourth one that's quite surprising to most people is light. 99% of all mushrooms require light and for them to be produced from the mycelium. There's no chlorophyll, but they are photosensitive and phototropic. Most mushrooms will go towards light. So if you are, some of those of you having grown mushrooms in an apartment or bedroom or at home, and if you had a window, oftentimes you'll see the mushrooms go directly towards the light. So those are four primary stimuli that induce mushrooms for, to form. And they form very, very quickly. <clears throat> so the mushroom mycelium um, is the immune system of the mushroom organism. The mushrooms are the fruit. The mycelium can be in the ground or growing for months, years, decades, and the mushrooms come up and they're the fruit body, much like a peach is to a tree, and then it attracts herbivores, insects. The mushrooms come up and they form very, very quickly. So five days of oyster mushrooms, that's how quickly they grow. So the, mu the mushrooms really don't need a good immune system. Good luck to any bacterium that wants to destroy the mushroom or eat it before it reproduces. The mushroom produces spores that attracts insects, and, but the mushroom mycelium from which it sprang has a very, very intense and active immune system that we can tap into. So a four, short version of the mushroom life cycle, um, two spores come together. Uh, if they're sexually compatible, they fuse, and the mycelium becomes binucleate and dikaryotic downstream, and very quickly the mushrooms form, more spores are being produced, but this stage here can go on for years. This stage here oftentimes is just five days. 
So, at a permaculture conference, I was surprised that most permaculturists did not know that mushroom mycelium produces water. And about when you, on a substrate of straw or sawdust, when you decom when the mycelium decomposes straw or sawdust, 20% of that mass becomes water. So the mycelium hydrates environments in which they uh, in which they're a resident, and in doing so, they condition the ecosystem conducive to the growth of the mycelium that then can go into these moist environments and, and take advantage of those newly available nutrients. This is my manly man picture. <laughs> um, so part of my younger experience, and I'm, I'm quite proud of this, when I was 19 to 21, I went into the woods. You know, I had this, I think a lot of young men suffer from testosterone poisoning. And I decided, well, what's the, the most difficult job in America and what's something that really test me? And I thought, well, setting chokers in the woods. So I said, I was in the, in the logging industry for about four years, two years, the last two years um, as a logger. Um, and it was a brutally difficult uh, job. Three of my crewmates and a crew of six got killed. Um, they wanted me to become what's called the hooker, <laughs> not a prostitute. Um, but that's the, the chief of the, of the crew. And I said, no, I'm going back to college. You know, when and then some of the best, my best friends were these loggers, and uh, you're working with them day and in, in, day in and day out, and they're watching your back, and you're watching their back because things happen. You know, when lo when logs, you know, break lines, and you know, I still in my nightmares remember this. And if you're a, a log, if everybody has set chokers or been around a logging community, that that means basically there's a steel wire that's broken, that's going through the brush so fast you can't see it. And if it hits you, it'll cut you in half. And so, um, so anyhow, but these, these loggers I was with, they were really into mushrooms. And some of them were really environmentalists. Like, we can't log this forest. This is my best chanterelle patch, you know? And so it was very interesting to look at that. But what the logging industry did is they demonized the environmentalists in order to distract, I think, uh, young men and women, but mostly young men, from the fact that the logging industry was going to destroy your bodies in the age of 35. Your, your backs will be broken, you'll be, have bad discs, and there's no safety net. So they distracted the young, the young loggers from demonizing the environmentalists as that, that is your enemy when in fact the logging industry you know, was exploiting young people's bodies and damaging them for life and then leaving them and, and for, for younger people. So here's wood chips. We add mycelium to it. Lots of things happen, but ultimately, fungi generate soil. They're the grand soil magicians of nature. They demolecularize cellulose and lignin. In the process of decomposition, all sorts of other nutrients are being produced for benefit of other organisms within the ecosystem. So fungi create soil. We need more soil on this planet. And the loss of soils, and this has been you know, I think is leading to the loss of biodiversity. So we live up here in the Puget Sound area. Here's the Columbia River. And down here is the largest organism in the world. It's a mycelial mat that is 2,200 acres in size, 1,665 football fields, three feet deep, the largest organism in the world, a contiguous mycelial mat, and it's one cell wall thick. You have five or six skin layers that protect you from infection. The mycelium has one 
cell wall. And on the other side of that cell wall is hundreds of millions of other microorganisms that are eager to many of which are eager to consume the mycelium. How is it possible to achieve the greatest mass of any organism and yet only be one cell wall away from all these potential parasitic microorganisms? It's because it's in constant biomolecular communication with its ecosystem, and because of its network-like design, it's able to upregulate immune defenses that prevents it from being parasitized. And these immune defenses are quite sophisticated. And so the mycelium can form spirals in culture, the spirals in the forest. And this is a closer view of, of the mushroom that created, created this huge mycelial mat. It's a honey mushroom called Armillaria astoii. It's an edible mushroom. It kills the trees. The Forest Service comes and then cuts the trees down. Um, and so this mushroom then grows saprophytically. The Forest Service cuts the trees down because of fire hazard, obviously. When the trees die, they're extremely uh, dry, and, um, and they, they be, uh, they're, they're tremendous fuel for fire. So now looking at the, the influence of mycorrhizal species, uh, this is from Mike Amaranthus, a friend of mine. This is a fir tree without mycorrhizae, with mycorrhizae, without mycorrhizae, with mycorrhizae. This is very well established that you know plants benefit from the mycorrhizal fungi. In fact, it's difficult to buy any soil now from any nursery that does not have mycorrhizae in it. So we uh, purchased some land on Cortez Island, and I've written a number of patents. One of my patents I licensed for a large amount of money, and then George Bush got re-elected. <laughs> and um, so I bought land in Canada. Um, that seemed like a good idea. And so we bought 160 acres in Canada. And we planted 33,000 trees. And they were being sold by this logging, uh, these loggers. They had six other bids for the property. I came in there and said, listen, I'll take over the planting. Leave the roads. All you have to do is flip the paper. No conditions. And everybody else had all these conditions uh, on their bids. And they, so they, they, they said, great, we'll love to sell, sell to you. We left the roads up because we wanted them to have, have as ecological barriers. And so we would plant, we planted 31,000 trees with and without mycorrhizae and with and without a collar of wood chips around the tree. The idea is I'm, a, I'm opposed to burning, uh, except under specific circumstances. But when you burn wood chips is liberated into carbon dioxide and other gases in one day and you're robbing the carbon bank of the ecosystem that led to those trees in the first place and what's happening in the logging community when i was doing it that we were doing three log loads three logs to a logging truck these are massive old growth trees and what's happened now is there's only one mill in the in the united states that can mill old growth trees uh old, old, in, in, in washington oregon idaho uh, all the other mills have to retool because the trees have gotten smaller. The trees have gotten smaller because they're second and third growth, and you have what's called premature decline. You go monocropping, you cut down all the trees that's biodiverse, you put it in all the same age trees, they all grow up at the same age, they're crowded, and then the soil's thin, so the winds come and the trees get blown down. So the economists for the logging industry said you need to cut those trees sooner and sooner. By the third and fourth regeneration, the trees are so small, the roots are so shallow, the thin so, so, so the soil is so thin that you know it's a, it's, it becomes they're incentivized to cut the trees when they're small poles. So this is what's happening and that the fourth or fifth cut they abandon that land. They sell it off as real estate. 
So this was happening all over the all over the world. <clears throat> so here is uh, two of our Douglas fir trees. This is the Douglas fir tree uh, without wood chips and a color of wood chips. So what we did is told the logger the loggers leave all the brush. We and we hired four people for four months. It cost about twenty five thirty five thousand dollars. And we chipped all the brush, uh, which was a huge amount of work. Um, but we had control sites. We put 1,100 trees into an Excel spreadsheet. We tagged them, and three of, uh, of my fellow employees uh, measure the trees and the width and the, the girth and the height every year. And so this is very exciting because uh, now we have a clear separation from the benefit of the the trees with mycorrhizae and wood chips versus the, those that did not. And so what I realized is that, you know, the, the forests are not being measured with the ecological metric that most of us would appreciate. Besides timber board feet of lumber, if there's clean water, there's biodiversity, there's habitat, there's recreation for your kids, for you to go in there, for hunters, for foragers of mushrooms, those metrics don't matter. They should matter, but they don't. And, in our capitalistic system. What matters is timber board feet uh, of lumber coming from the woods. So I thought, well, if you could demonstrate that it is economically more advantageous to leave the wood chips there, use mycorrhizal fungi, then you can meet them on that playing field, which I don't agree with the rules, but that's the rules that we have to abide by, and showing that actually you can get more timber feet, uh, timber foot uh, footage of lumber out of the forest if you follow this other meth methodology. We looked throughout the scientific literature and the forestry journals. No one had done this. We were shocked. No one had done had taken the time to do it on a large on a large scale like this. So I, we're going to publish this. We're at, at, at ten years now, um, and the, we have, we have increasingly higher significance. We have separation now. The top one is the height of the tree. This is the girth of the trees. So the trees are getting wider in the girth, and they are also getting taller. So the mycelium presents itself in many forms. This is what I call happy mycelium. I'm very happy when I see mycelium growing like this. It constantly forks. And then mushrooms form, as you saw, within just a few days. And then the mushrooms begin to rot. After sporulation, they give themselves up. And all sorts of organisms begin to grow on them. And so coming back a few days later, the mushroom spores are germination, are germinating. Lots of other organisms are occurring also. And then a few days later, coming back to the same mushroom, it goes subterranean. The mushroom basically dematerializes and rematerializes into mycelium. And my foot there covers approximately 300 miles of mycelium. There's more than a, a mile of mycelium per cubic inch of soil. So these soils are myceliated landscapes. And these landscapes are the large amount of the biomass of soil is fungal tissue. So my friend Patrick Kiki uh, made this microscopic movie, and this is the mycelium uh, over several hours, and these are bundles of nuclei that are streaming through the mycelial networks. And the, the mycelium at the end tips, when it's branching constantly, is polynucleate. And that polynucleation is extremely important as an adaptive mechanism for responding to catastrophia and also for evolving new techniques for overcoming hurdles that would limit their growth. So think of it like in the width of my arms, 
there can be literally tens of millions of end branchings of mycelium. And the older mycelium in the interior may only have two nuclei per cell, but the tips can have hundreds of nuclei per cell. Well, think of those as little scientific communities all doing experiments. And if there's a new exotic chemical, a toxin, a new piece of wood, uh, a piece of plastic, and the mycelium is hungry, if, if those, those nuclei then code for a new genetic sequence and expresses a new enzyme that can decompose this foreign material, what happens is the information, the mycelium surges because it can digest this new food, and then the information back channels to the mycelium. So these become self-educating membranes. And this gives them an incredible adaptive properties that most other organisms don't have, uh, that don't, uh, can't, cannot achieve. So here's a fantastic experiment that um, the Japanese did, which I love. And this is, the Japanese decided, because of a slime mold, has this very interesting uh, properties of navigation, they decided, well, let's see if a slime mold could redesign the Japanese subway system. So this is Tokyo. <laughs> And this is a slime mold, and these are the satellites around uh, satellite cities around Tokyo. And then after five hours, the, the, it's growing. After 11 hours, it's growing in each of these points. It's in their city with an oat flake there. And, and there's all sorts of random exploratory branches from the, from the mycelium here. At 11 hours, at 26 hours, it shuts down all the non-essential pathways and redesigned the Tokyo sub subway system in, in a more efficient manner than it's designed today. And moreover, when mathematicians looked at this, solving this problem, the slime mold achieved near optimization of being able to connect the subsidies around Tokyo in a more efficient manner than the modern engineers had, had, had been able to do. Well, I mean, I look at this and I say, of course, uh, after hundreds of millions of years of evolution, conservation of resources, efficiencies rewarded through natural selection, that of course the mycelium would find the most proximate, you know, and the most efficient uh, way of being able to, to, to uh, absorb nutrients. But this, I think, you know, if you have an engineering problem, maybe you should consult a slime mold. Maybe this is a, a good thing to do. <clears throat> so now I'm going to wax poetic, but I, I you know, I, I increasingly feel more and more confident about this, the mycelial archetype. These are brain neurons. The organization of the computer internet represented here also conforms to the same archetype shared by that of the mycelium. When you go uh, and looking at dark matter, this is the deep field view from the Hubble telescope. Uh, these are postulated as to what dark matter would look like if you could see it. It also forms to the same cobweb-like mycelial archetype. And then looking at the mycelium, now going to the furthest view of the universe, these are the strings of all the galaxies all put together. It conforms to the same archetype compared uh, that, that is shared by the mycelium. I don't see these as accidents. A different orders of magnitude, you know, nature rewards, efficiency, elasticity, resilience, the ability to adapt. And I think this is just the way, the way of the universe. I personally feel a lot better about my own mortality. You know, we are part of the same matrix. We're part of the same molecular matrix. The same molecular matrix. We will demolecularize. You know, we will reform. Our molecules will be shared by other organisms. I think this is the, the way of the universe. I believe matter begets life. Life becomes single cells. 
Single cells become strings. Linearly, they branch. Networks and membranes form. They encounter other membranes. They either compete or cooperate. They, can, they have commensal organisms in between that are interfacing. And I think this is the part, this is the way of life, that we'll find other network-based organisms throughout the universe and probably in fungal forms. So I like this. This is from a, the Discovery Channel. And I do a lot of fermentation with mycelium in my laboratory. And this is what it looks like. And I'm going, oh my goodness, this is what, this is what dark matter looked like also. Um, and so it's just, you know, these, these, these things shout out at you. I'm, I'm working with cultures and petri dishes and doing fermentation and liquid. And I look at this and I can't help, you know, but think of these things as being, wow, this is part of a larger paradigm uh, that we're all, uh, in which we're all inserted. So the universe formed about 13.8 billion years ago after the Big Bang. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> thank you <laughs> and then the earth formed about 14.5 billion years ago oh yes okay and their first organisms uh, were thought to be about 3.8 billion years ago so to about 700 million years you know from the formation of the earth the fourth or first organisms began to form well 420 million years ago this this organism existed. Uh, it was a big controversy in science for a long time. It first discovered in 1857, given the name Prototaxides. And then Dr. Kevin Boyce in the Journal of Geology finally figured out through carbon uh, dating uh, what this organism was. And he was able to find out that Prototaxides um, was a giant fungus dotting across the, the, the planet. Um, and these were up to 30 feet high, the tallest organisms on land at that time. This is before vascular plants. Ferns and whatnot were the, the tallest plants at that time 420 million years ago. So, wow. you know, these were the tallest organisms on Earth. They, there was a, it was electromagnetically a lot more uh, uh, exciting back then. And so they, they would attract lightning strikes. You have epigenesis. You would have insects. You know, so... This is a, a major discovery to realize that Prototaxides was a giant fungus dotting the faces of the Earth. Well, we advanced forward to 250 million years ago uh, at the time of uh, Pangaea, where we had a huge cataclysmic extinction event. Um, and this extinction event is not fully understood. Uh, there's three competing theories. One is the asteroid impact. Uh, the other one is methane hydrate bursts from the ocean. The third one is it's volcanoes bursting. I don't see them as mutually exclusive. The asteroid impact would have created the earthquakes that would crack the crust, that would cause the, the fissures that the, the volcanic you know, flow would occur, and the methane hydrate, uh, hydrate would burst from the ocean. In any event, you know, different percentages are used, but approximately 90% of the species uh, on the planet became extinct. The earth became shrouded in dust, sunlight was cut off, and fungi inherited the earth. In fact, we know what the fungus is. It's called Reduviosporinides. Um, and it was, uh, this, it was the, this fungus uh, gobbled up the wood debris and became the most predominant uh, organism found in the fossil record directly after 250 million years ago, microscopically. So um, that's interesting. So then we go to Gondwana land about 140 million years ago. You know, plus or minus 20 million in that, and then we have continental drift. 
And then 65 million years ago, we have an asteroid impact. Now we know about this one for sure. And it struck in the Yucatan. But a repeating extinction event, huge amount of dust in the atmosphere, sunlight's cut off, and fungi re-inherit the Earth. There's a recurring lesson here, folks. When we're facing extinction events, pairing with fungi has an evolutionary advantage, and we should make use of that. So looking at the mycelium, here is wicking up to the surface. This is called a shiro. This is a Matsutake shiro. Um, and the mycelium's exhaling carbon dioxide, inhaling, uh, 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 inhaling oxygen. So the mycelium is not only an externalized stomach digesting nutrients uh, outside of its cells, um, it's also an externalized lungs. It's exhaling carbon dioxide, inhaling oxygen. And as I postulated earlier, I believe these are externalized intelligent neurological networks um, that, that are sentient, they're aware that when you walk across the across them in the forest, they're walk they're watching you, they're leaping up behind you in the competition of you breaking wood, and these a lot of these fungi follow human activity. It's very interesting in the field of mycology. And several mycologists are here that the predominant psilocybin mushrooms that grow on wood are associated with human chipping of wood, building houses, landscaping, putting wood chips down. And they're oftentimes rare in the virgin forest, but they're extremely common around academic institutions, law enforcement facilities, you know, Google, uh, Googleplex. I don't know anyone from Google here, but you got psilocybes growing in your yard. Um, maybe that's good, you know. Um, so, anyhow, so the mycelium can be unified by by, by uh, can unify disparate species of plants. Uh, they can all be unified by one fungus, and so. I believe habitats of immune systems and the mycelial networks are the cellular bridges that connect us all. <clears throat> so this is where I live on 20 acres on Skookum Inlet. Um, and this is our facility here. And we produce about 20,000 kilos of mycelium a week. We have about 24 laminar flow benches. We now have a company of 68 employees. Um, we have five facilities now. This is our facility that we, this is my, where I live. And so we have this laboratory complex, about 20,000 square feet of laboratories. We grow about 700 species of fungi. Now, when I first moved on the property in 1984, um, you know, I bought the, this 20 acres for $110,000, 400 feet of waterfront. What a deal. Now, um, and I got there and I'm unpacking all my stuff and week after I got there, a sheriff showed up. I thought, that was awfully quick. <laughs> I'm still unpacking. You know? <laughs> and everybody on this inlet was served a summons saying that you had to put in a certified inspected septic system or you'd be evicted off your property and you had two years to do it. Well, I had cows, chickens, and pigs. I bought the small farm, one horse. Most of you know cows, chickens, and pigs uh, reproduce more than, their, more, more than twice uh, in the next year. And, and my property was identified as a point source of pollution because of the, the farm animals and there's a little waterfall coming off the property. So, um, you know, uh, I had two years to put in a septic system. I just bought the property. I couldn't afford to put in a $25,000 new certified septic system. But instead, I put in wood chips and, and the little swales that led down to the ravines to the waterfall. A year later, a fleet of government officials show up again, and they said, uh, Paul Samus, we have to talk to you. 
They could look around. They could see all my animals. They said, did you put in a septic system? And I said, no. And they said, well, this is really extraordinary. You're the only you know, outfall on this inlet that we see this result. You have a two-log, 100-fold reduction of E. coli, fecal coliform E. coli coming off your property. What did you do? So I said, well, I put in these wood chips and I inoculated it with the mycelium of the garden giant mushroom. This led to an EPA grant, uh, phase one, $85,000. We published now three articles and we were able to show that putting the garden giant mushroom mycelium in wood chips selectively pulls out fecal coliform bacteria, E. coli specifically, and the mycelium digests and eats the E. coli as a food source. So this became the dawn of mycofiltration. And all these articles are available if you go to our website at fungi.com and you can download these articles if you wish. Um, we were then, uh, prior to that, we did a test. And this is a logarithmic scale here. Uh, 10, to the, 10 to the first power is 10. 10 to the third power is 1,000. 10 to the sixth is a million. 100 million colonies of bacteria of E. coli in a milliliter of water, one gram of water. So this is incredibly rich. And then we did extracts of the oyster mushroom, a birch polypore, and a garicon, Fomitopsis fishnalis. We did 10 different species, I just guessed. And uh, three of these reduced the, the uh, E. coli from more than 100 million down to 1,000 in 24 hours. I mean, a 10,000 to 1 reduction of E. coli in 24 hours from the exudates of little droplets coming from the mycelium. So, wow, that was really exciting for us. That led us to the EPA art, uh, uh, grant that we wrote and the articles that you saw. So then we started doing something that I was, I was, uh, I hypothesized that I bet you the mycelium is selecting out a microbiome of beneficial bacteria. And the mycelium would condition the, the microbiota of the ecosystem that would be conducive to the plants that give rise to create the debris field to feed the mycelium that these are deterministic in the downstream populations of organisms they're creating because it serves their own progeny and their own evolutionary advantage for them to survive by choosing the members that decompose them over time and how they navigate through the ecosystem. So we did next-gen sequencing here of the garden giant uh, grown in these wood chips in Urpex lacteus. This is a, two, this is a polypore mushroom. This is a big, uh, big fleshy mushroom you'll see. And this is a color heat map and basically, we found that there was a thousand-fold difference in the relative abundance of bacteria on the same wood chips. So we used the same wood chips, and we inoculated one pile here. We separated the wood chips in half, one pile with the, with the garden giant, one pile, uh, one, one pile with this polypore mushroom. And we found that the, over time, they selected out a thousand-fold relative difference in the abundance of genera between the two mycelial mats thus proving that they have different microbiomes that they're selecting for. This has never been reported in the scientific literature. <clears throat> These mushrooms become quite large, the garden giant. This is my daughter when she was younger and my son. These are five pound specimens, which I, then I fed to salmon and I inadvertently discovered that that fly larvae grow in these mushrooms and you can feed them the salmon and they're very important for the riparian ecosystem as well as for fish ecosystems. And so then looking at the mycelium, there's the extracellular droplets that we're so excited about. And then coinciding the growth of the mycelium is bacteria, the majority of which are we think are parasitizing, but we now know there's commensal bacteria. 
with mycelium selects as a partner to say, hey, we will mutualistically let you survive, but we want you to keep your other pathogenic cousins of yours away from us. And so this is something that we're actively involved now is creating microbiomes of mycelial mats in vitro, in culture, and then designing microbiomes with the mycelium using nature as a guide to see if we could fortify the mycelium for being able to project into nature for bioremediation of toxins, for helping ecosystems respond, cleaning up water, you know, helping other members of the ecological community. The mycelium is incredibly tenacious. It, it takes physical force to pull this apart. Um, and this is a rhizomorph of mycelium. And I measured this, and this uh, one centimeter uh, held more than 30,000 times its weight. Well, I could have made that, you know, one centimeter into one millimeter, one-tenth as much. It would be uh, over 300,000 times its weight. So the mycelium, when it grows through a substrate, is tenacious. It holds it together. It prevents erosion. It creates these micro-cavities that then swell with water. So they're spongy habitats. They hold water resident within the ecosystem. So I'm going to jump now to subjects that I think are really interesting. This is their, um, their Chernobyl a nuclear uh, power plant in the Ukraine, outside of Kiev. Um, and this is an incredibly radioactive site, as most of you know. And a group of scientists were looking at video feeds on the inside of the walls of the reactor where the meltdown occurred. More than a million rads of radioactivity where nothing should be growing. And on the cement walls were black molds. They said, how is it possible that anything could be living in there? They went into, those, in, into, their, into that environment, pulled out the molds, and began to grow them in an astonishing breakthrough in science heretofore never known. And this is where it's an unfortunate science experiment. From, from these catastrophes and disasters, we have an opportunity of learning a new lesson. And what they discovered was that the fungi exposed to the radiation, the melanizing fungi, fungi that have melanin, we have melanin as well, the melanizing fungi are able to use gamma irradiation as a fuel source for cellular metabolism similar and analogous to the way that plants use chlorophyll and light. <laughs> so this discovery, you know, with absence of light, fungi are mineral mineralizing uh, the, the, the walls, fungi break and eat down rocks, and with this understanding now, this could allow for the interplanetary colonization of space, because fungal foods like tempeh could be then grown using the radioactive, uh, radi the, the radioactivity coming from the engines of the nuclear-powered spaceships, and one of the big challenges for colonizing space is how do we grow the food? Um, so in the vacuum of space, it's very, very difficult to do so, uh, to grow plants because of the lighting requirements, etc. So this is amazing that these plant, these fungi are able to, these melanizing fungi are able to uptake their radiation to use it as a metabolic fuel source. <clears throat> so, so we started playing around with melanization. We grow lots of turkey tail mushrooms, Tremetes versicolor. Um, and this is under UV lights, and this is under our regular lights. And so we're now being able to melanize fungi by balancing uh, light, uh, the, the spectra of lights that we're exposing the mushrooms to. I'm getting a little bit, I'm venturing into things that are kind of getting proprietary, 
but I don't care because this really expire, inspires me. But so what we're really focusing now is on white, uh, wavelengths of light. And you'll hear more about this, uh, you know, in, in the next few minutes. So, but let's look at some mushrooms that most of you know about. Enokitake, you'll find it in the stores. Enokitake mushrooms are uh, grown, you know, very popular in Asia. They grow here in North America. But enoki uh, mushrooms really made medical history for the following example. Dr. Ikikawa was the epidemiologist for the National Cancer Center in Tokyo. Um, I've met him several times. He was sent by the National Cancer Center to the Nagano Prefecture uh, because there was a drop in the cancer rates that was abnormal for Japan. Mountainous region of Japan, they wanted to know why was there less than the national average of cancer deaths in that region. He spent several months there and he determined the reason being is that it was a center of enoki mushroom cultivation. And because there are so many enoki uh, workers there, the workers would take home the blemished ones. Many of you are farmers. You know, you take home you know, the ones that are perfect tomatoes you can sell in the market, but the ones that have a little wormhole or, or bacterial blotch on them, you can't. But you, you eat those. And so the per capita consumption of the workers and their families was eight times greater than other residents that uh, in Japan. So here is the average death per 100,000 people per year in Japan. 160 people, we have about 190 or 200. Men, men are, are dying because uh, sooner because we don't live as long, uh, one of the reasons. So it's age-adjusted, 174,000 people in this data, data set, uh, high significance. So this is the, the, the background population in Nagano, and this is the cancer deaths now of the Inoki mushroom consumers and their families. Statistically significant. This was published then in a Western medical journal, and this is the first article that I know of that really um, brought good science to Western medical, uh, to, to, to Western medicine, showing that the consumption of mushrooms reduces your death from cancer. So, um, so here is a lion's mane mushroom, which I think is the first smart mushroom besides psilocybin, but the first smart mushroom. Um, and it produces these novel nerve growth factors that causes the regeneration of myelin. Um, and very interesting articles have come out, specifically one uh, a mouse experiment, which is called a novelty experiment, where they took uh, mice and they put them into an arena, and they put in a new, a, a new object, a new toy in the arena, 100 mice, and they would stopwatches and then clickers. They would, they would measure how long and how many times the mice would encounter this new toy. They then took that, that group of mice, they injected an amyloid plaque forming toxin that causes an amyloid plaque, plaque similar to what Alzheimer's victims have and the demyelination of the, of, of the myelin sheet on the axons of nerves. And the amyloid plaques uh, uh, show up um, and they interfere with neurotransmission. So if you have a relative or someone dies from Alzheimer's upon autopsy, these amyloid plaques are easily seen. They can chemically induce this uh, in, in the mice. When they did that, after about three weeks, they put that new object in the arena, the mice had no interest. They lost their curiosity. With those mice that had full-blown Alzheimer's-like symptoms, they started feeding them lion's mane mushrooms, and three to four weeks, they returned to baseline. Upon sacrificing the mice, you know, they, the amyloid plaque had been resolved, remyelination had occurred. 
And so this, I think, is hugely significant. There's been two small clinical studies in Japan on this, but as we get older, the biggest, the, one of the greatest tragedies are that our elders begin to lose their wisdom, you know, they lose their mind, their, their memory. Uh, and so I think we all need to be smarter. And this is something that four years ago when I was here, I suggested that the combination of lion's mane motion, uh, mushrooms and low doses of psilocybin, I think, could lead to neurogenesis. And this could be something that's incredibly helpful for scientists, uh, people who really want to be at the edge of innovation. And so that's something that I know now a number of people here at Burning Man are taking uh, low daily, daily doses of psilocybin with lion's mane. So we'll see what happens. <laughs> Okay, so here's the change in, uh, in deaths between 2000 and 2008. You know, these, most of these the, the deaths related to breast cancer, prostate cancer, heart disease are declining. Uh, but unfortunately, the deaths related to Alzheimer's-like uh, diseases is increasing. This is particularly concerning because here's the population in the world today uh, that's over the age of 65, and this is what it is in 2050. We have a huge aging of our population. So the next generations are going to be burdened with a lot of elders who are going to need a lot of medical attention. Okay, so we have done analysis at Emory Medical School on the, these compounds that causes remyelination. They're called aranacines. And we have variability in the production of, of aranacines, which is to be expected. This is why mycodiversity, the diversity of fungi, is very important. Um, so we're working on that. And... Other species of, uh, in the genus Sericium that are like lion's mane are ones also that we're exploring. This is my brother Bill. He eats lion's mane. He's a very smart guy. So, <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to get a little, little bit more into science here, but this is important for people uh, to come up the learning curve. The mycelium codes... Uh, has has a lot more genes that are being upregulated at the mycelial state than at the at the mushroom formation state. So the mycelium is coding for a lot more molecules, and it's much more is much richer in potential medicinal compounds than the end stage of the process, the mushrooms, which is the fruit body. So the the the, the activity of the gene sequences being a lot more resplendent uh, gives us a lot more opportunities for uh, for exploring for new uh, medical molecules. Okay, so 73% of all cancer drugs have origins in natural products. We all have cancer. You know, one out of four or five of us in this room are going to die from cancer. So this is something that, you know, we have to take very seriously. We received a $2.2 million uh, NIH uh, grant uh, for breast cancer study using turkey tail mushrooms with Bastyr Medical College and the University of Minnesota Medical School. And so we grew up the turkey tail mushrooms, and I was a co-PI. I wrote part of the grant that received the money. Uh, and then after we received the money, my co-PIs said, well, where should you get the mushrooms? And I said, well, definitely get them from us. There's so many problems that can occur in this process. One of the big things that people don't know is the mycelium delaminates. And as it goes over ages, the netting loosens up. And so you can start out with something that, and, and by analogy, that looks like the netting of a nylon sock and end up with something with the netting of a tennis net in the same spatial dimension. 
So the mycelium begins to unravel and loses integrity. So if you don't know this, then when you buy medicinal mushroom products, you know, you have no clue as to really what you're getting. So they said you can't be a, a principal investigator and supplier of a, a conflict of interest, choose one or the other. So I resigned and became a supplier candidate. They checked five other suppliers against what we were doing. We came out number one, thankfully. So we became the sole source supplier for this breast cancer clinical study. This has now been published uh, uh, in a medical journal. Uh, Pre-radiation, the natural killer cell activity, post-radiation, it declines because your immune system is being impaired. And two to four weeks, we have a dose-dependent increase in the natural killer cells and cytotoxic T cells, high significance, specifically showing that T cell uh, augmentation occurs. Natural killer cells and T cells are your two front lines uh, of immune protection, uh, uh, causing apoptosis and destroying uh, cancer cells. So, again, very high significance. So this is really exciting. We're involved in this research, but there was an age limit. The the we, the selection range was women from the age of 35 to, to I think about 55, in that range. Well, this became very important to me because. My mother called me up in June of uh, 2009, and she was very, very disturbed and shaking on the phone. And she said, Paul, I'm so worried. I need to talk to you, but you're always so busy. I went, oh, no, what's, the, what's wrong? And she said, you know, she's a charismatic Christian. She has not seen a doctor since 1968. She said, my right breast is five times the size of my left. I have six angry lymph nodes on my right side. You know, she started shaking and crying, and, and I, you know, I was like, Mom, why didn't you tell me sooner? Well, she's a charismatic Christian. She's part of a Christian community, and they prayed for her. And um, they prayed for her, and um, they said that, you know, after the prayer, they said, well, you've been cured of cancer. Well, of course, that was not true. So I rushed her to Seattle, to the Swedish uh, Cancer Center, and got her there. Upon the second visit, we got the worst news that anyone could imagine. The, the oncologist said it's the second case, worst case of breast cancer that the oncologist has seen in 20 years. Um, it had metastasized across the meridian, went into her liver, went into her sternum. Uh, the tumor was erupting through her breast. Um, and the doctor said, we can't do surgery on you. We can't do a mastectomy because you like to get an infection. You know, she's 83 years of age at that point in time. Um, and and we can't give you radiation therapy because again you can get an infection. But she said, you know, there's an interesting turkey tail, you know, clinical study going on at Bastyr Medical School. If your immune system could kick in, you might be able to fight this. So that's what my mother said. Well, my son's been telling me about that, but she would not believe. For me, she had to hear it from a doctor, right? So, <clears throat> so my mother started taking turkey tail mushrooms, and she started taking uh, eight capsules per day of the mycelium. Um, she then went back to Ellensburg, Washington, where she lived. She en enrolled in her, her septic clinic, and she was on Taxol briefly, had a horrible reaction. She started taking Herceptin, a wonderful drug, and then she started taking eight turkey tail capsules per day. And that was in 2009. In June, she began. In January of, of 2010, her tumors had shrunk down to the point that they were barely detectable whatsoever. And then I think this will work. Try this. And then, so here is a message she left me. 
Tony, I hope this works. All right, well, so what happened was my mother is, um, I just, we just celebrated her 90th birthday. She's um, totally cancer-free. And Tony, I hope this works for the next the audios that are coming up. Okay, so now my mother's been written up in several medical journals as a best-case outcome. They interviewed uh, her with Julie Smith, her oncologist. Julie Smith was asked if uh, Patty Stamets had told you she was taking turkey tail mushrooms, what would you have told her? And Julie Smith, her doctor, said I would have told her to stop taking turkey tail mushrooms immediately. My mother and I and Julie Smith believe that was a life and death decision that we did not tell the doctor. Because out of an abundance of caution, doctors want to see if their regimen is going to work. And they're not, not up the learning curve. The NIH peer review scientists were. We brought them up the learning curve. But so, you know, doctors are not well educated in this subject are going to, you know, they're trained to be authoritarian figures. And I just heard of a doctor, a very well-known doctor, who told a very well-known musician that all of you know. And he said, stop taking medicinal mushrooms because you might get an infection. Are you freaking kidding? That would be like saying, don't eat plants because there's poison oak. You know, I mean, I mean, the person had no knowledge at all. But, I mean, doctors will give you advice about your car, you know, just because they get intoxicated by their position of power. I mean, it makes no friggin' sense whatsoever. So doctors can be also a great liability. But this has been written up in several articles, and then an article came out uh, with Turkey Tail, PSK, and uh, being joined together with Herceptin that shows that turkey tail mushrooms enhances the activity of Herceptin as an adjunct to conventional therapy. So then um, an article came out just this past year. Um, for those of you who know about PSK and turkey tail, uh, PSK is a protein-bound polysaccharide on a beta-glucan molecule. But it turns out, and I've been advocating this for a long time, it's the lipid compound that's attached to PSK that causes the immune response. And if you use hot water extraction, lipids are not soluble in hot water. And when you use hot water, you actually set, you, you pull out the, the beta-glucan soluble components, but you leave the lipid components behind. So it turns out that hot water extraction of, of mushrooms uh, partitions the beneficial lipids or fatty acids that are essential for the immune response. Okay, so there's different polarities. I need to move forward on this. So the turkey tail mushrooms pre-select a, as a prebiotic and, a and, and two studies here showing that turkey tail mushroom enhances lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. These are beneficial bacteria in your microbiome in your stomach and down-regulate inflammatory bacteria. So these mushrooms are prebiotics and they're compatible with your microbiome. That's very important for your immune response. We wrote an NIH grant, did not get funded, uh, but we wrote this specifically to sort of lay out loud for everyone how you can do analyses of all medicinal mushrooms. Um, it's a great paper. We have it available for any other researchers who want to read it. Uh, but unfortunately, because of the sequester, it was not funded. So this led me into oncoviruses. I'm very interested in the viral to cancer connection. There's seven oncoviruses that have been identified thus far. There's probably a lot more. Uh, HPV being one with cervical cancer and other types of carcinomas. I'm going to have to. I'm going to accelerate this this talk right now. So uh, a a person in Seattle, Washington, had Merkel cell carcinoma. 
the uh, death rate from Merkel cell carcinoma is about 99.999999%. Only 10 people in the world have ever survived. It's caused by a polyoma virus uh, and your certain genetic composition. You will get uh, Merkel cell carcinoma as a death sentence. This patient did not tell the doctors what medicinal mushrooms he was taking. They called him back saying, you're the only survivor we know of, you know. Are there only 10 people in the world that ever survived? What did you do? We have no treatment whatsoever. There's no surgery. There's no gene therapy. There's no immune therapies that they're, they're aware of. And he said, well, it's interesting because what we did is we, I, I was taking a seven-species mushroom blend. And, uh, and he ended up uh, uh, beating Merkel cell carcinoma. He's been written up now in the medical uh, journals. And um, clinical studies like this are very, very difficult uh, because it's a nutraceutical, and the FDA will not allow uh, clinical studies, plus you have to have them funded. Uh, so it's very, very expensive, especially in this economic climate today. So uh, Dr. Paul Nim from the University of Michigan, uh, the University of Washington, Fred Hutch gave me these micrographs. This is of that 58-year-old man. This is it's called immune evasion. It is the, the your immune system is active when you have cancer, but the tumors cloak themselves from immune discovery. And then after this person was taking, you know, this regimen of medicinal mushrooms, uh, then you had uh, uh, tumor disaggregation. The white blood cells were able to find docking points on the stroma of the tumors, come in and be able to tear the tumors apart. And so this is called immune invasion versus immune evasion. So it decloaks the tumors for immune discovery. This is why a lot of scientists are pretty excited about this because it looks like it uncloaks the tumors and to make other med medical treatments uh, uh, more likely to be to be successful. So I have to... The agaricon mushroom is one that we're really excited about. It's the longest living mushroom in the world. One out of a hundred times in the woods, I'll find it. We now have 73 strains of agaricon from different regions of Washington, Oregon, Northern California, and British Columbia. And one of our, ex our adventures went up to the Desolation Sound in British Columbia. We rented a motor sailor, and we went up Desolation Sound, and a National Geographic photojournalist came with us. And um, I got this National Nat Geo Award, and they want to do a story on agaricon. So I said, well, come out in the summertime. We'll take you up on a, on a voyage. And the photojournalist said, well, I want to know, I want to go and find an original one. I don't want you to go to a place you've already seen it before. So how likely would you find that, you know? And I go, 50-50, you know? But I had good reasons for saying that. It's really one out of 100 you know, chances, but I did't want to dissuade them, right? It was, it was uh, you know, it was exciting to have a Nat Geo story being written on us. So I took 10 of my friends with high-powered binoculars, and we scanned the horizon. And we looked for basically bald eagles. They, the agaricon grows in living snags, um, also dead snags, but, um, but you know, they, they look like big beehives on the horizon. We looked and we looked and we looked for four or five hours, and we got a retina burn because, you know, looking at tree after tree after tree after tree, and he was getting very dissatisfied and impatient. And then our skipper said, well, let's go to have lunch over here, and here's an overhang rock with some pictographs by First Peoples. We don't know what they mean. But it's a good place for us to get off the boat and stretch our legs. So we motor over there, and at this shamanic uh, site of these first peoples, we are over there, and then bam, we see one in a tree. And actually, it was attached to an upper branch. It fell. It then uh, balanced on this branch here, and the mycelium regrow, re reconnected, and then it grew two legs. So this is really unusual. 
So we, that was a great success. We're there. We're all excited. And Scott Franzlau, who's a friend of mine, we become friends. He's the director of the Tuberculosis Research Institute. Garakon was described by Dioscorides as elixirium ad longum vitam, the elixir of long life, specifically treating respiratory diseases, uh, consumption as it was known back then, now known as tuberculosis. So Scott knew of this ethnomycological history and knew of my research, so we connected over, over email, and Scott came out being the director and funded by the Gates Foundation, and after five years, we found an anti-tubercular compound. We published this in the Journal of Natural Products, a chlorinated coumarin. Now, these coumarins become very important. Okay, so we found this, and we were able to find that it was a very active against mycobacterium tuberculosis, um, you know, with his other, with our other colleagues here. So, but, you know, now we're going to go back to where we where they made that first discovery, and we're, and we're, this is the pictograph, and we're there, and we see this rock. So, there's the rock. Oh, wow, what was that rock doing? Well, there's a Garricon, there's a rock, there's a Garricon, there's a rock, there's a Garricon, there's a rock. You get the story here. So, how likely is it we'd find a Garricon? One out of a hundred. How likely is it find a Garricon where there's a pictographic site? That's uh, that was looks like it was used shamanistically as a healing site, and there's more to the story than that that some of you have heard. Well, I don't know, one in ten thousand. How likely is it we'd find with a rock that looks suspiciously like a garricon at the same location? I don't know. Make up a number, one out of a hundred thousand. How likely is it we'd find it on my birthday? And this is when the photojournalist started getting nervous and realizing what was going on and said, you know, does this happen to Paul often? And uh, my friends looked at him and said, yes. And I think this is the new convergence of spirituality and science. I am not religious, but I'm deeply spiritual. And I believe that you walk in science with good intentions, with good heart, with respect to nature, for nature, with respect for your ancestors, with a dedication to helping future generations, that nature will reward you. And so what you're going to see coming up next is a direct derivative of that, that belief. So Garakon is hard to get. We have to climb trees. We leave them in the forest if we can, unless it's going to be logged, in which case we take the conch, the big wood conch, Longest living mushroom in the world. This one's about 60 years of age. This one is from the <laughs> classic Northern California kind of guy. This one's probably 100 years old. This is the biggest one we've ever seen. We asked him to send us a small chunk. He sent us a, ch a chunk the size of a cantaloupe. So we were able to get this one in the culture. I think this is strain number 68. We have it in culture. The idea is different strains will have different potencies against bacteria like uh, tuberculosis, or and we started working against viruses. We GPS code them. We take a small piece of tissue, that much. We get them in the culture. This is part of our strain library. And then just prior to 9-11, I published this article in Herbalgram. It's a literature survey of all the articles that talk about the antiviral properties of mushrooms. And um, then 9-11 occurred, and a doctor with a BioShield biodefense program set up by Congress after 9-11, funded by more than a billion dollars, contacted me and said, Paul, we, we saw this article, and uh, we're wondering if you will contribute samples of some of your mushrooms for the BioShield biodefense program. We did, 
We submitted over 200 samples over a period of four years. And the selectivity index, SI index here, is a measure of selectivity that harms the virus without harming the human cell. Anything over two is active. Anything over 10 or more is considered very active. So the SI of 10, if you just remember that, anything more than 10 is highly active by virology tests established by the National Institutes of Health uh, in, co in combination with US AMRED and NIAID. So um, we submitted these samples and we hit huge home runs um, against pox viruses first. You can hear an interview with myself on National Public Radio the director of the BioShield program, the deputy director of the FDA. There's a vetted press release that said that we have the best of more than 200,000 samples. Uh, the majority of this were, were pharmaceutical molecules. And our natural extracts diluted 100 to 1 because they had ethanol in them. They had diluted them to 0.35% from 35%. 100 to 1 dilutions, and we had extremely high activity. In fact, the activity against ribavirin, which is the positive control, against flu viruses, is agaricon, reishi, and uh, chaga, uh, and is a combination of three species. So here's ribavirin against these flu viruses, flu A, H5N1, H5N1, H3N2, H, flu B, and here is our natural extracts diluted 100 to 1. Here are the SI numbers, greater than 10, so they look active, and those are our numbers. We're more than 10 times, in many cases, more active than the positive pharmaceutical control. So this led to a patent that I received last year. It got, got hijacked by the Department of Defense because of national security. We had to do an intergovernmental agency trace to pull the patent because after five years it didn't show up. And I told my patent attorney, what's going on? So the patent office says uh, national security pulled it uh, out of the pat patent office. For the same reason that you can't write a, a, a patent on a nuclear weapon, you know, the government can take it. So we had to do intergovernmental trace. We brought it back into the patent examination. We got these ridiculous declines. We had to do an appeal, and 10 examiners, unanimity of opinion, approved this patent after about uh, 10 years. A uh, group of Russians at the Vector Institute, which is like our Fort Detrick in Russia, also found uh, eight years later what I had discovered earlier, that agaricon mushrooms were highly active against, uh, against viruses. And then uh, part of my research, you know, uh, another article came out uh, showing uh, from Vector showing that uh, highly active against uh, flu viruses. So... We are in an age of viral storms. We'll have a convergence of more than one pathogenic virus. This is what's very scary that's happening out there right now. And as it turns out, this article just came out in the past uh, few months, and it turns out that blue light on mycelium produces shikimic acid, which is currently coming from the star anise that makes Tamiflu. Star anise can only be grown once a year in the Middle East primarily uh, and has incredibly toxic to make uh, the, the, the compounds that lead to Tamiflu. And it turns out that blue light specifically upregulates the production of shikimic acid and we can grow the mycelium 24-7 under blue light conditions. So okay, blue light is coming back into my, my mindscape here. So I got really excited about this. Well, maybe this explains why our mushrooms were active against H5N1 and, and influenza viruses.
Well, going back to pox viruses, we actually identified the two molecules active against pox viruses, sulfuronic acid and ibuprofen acid, uh, that beat the positive drug control, sidofovir. This is called bioguided fractionation. We did this at the University of Mississippi. And bioguided fractionation means that basically you have the natural product here, you take one solvent, you go down this branch, another solvent, you go down this branch, you retest to see which one's got more potent or less potent. The one that's more potent, then you go down the next branch of solvents. This is called bioguided fractionation with the standard in the pharmaceutical industry. It takes tens of millions of dollars, many, many years to find the active molecule because from the extracts, there's more than 200,000 molecules in these extracts. So this is where it gets kind of weird. So in the course of our work with NIH Virology, we contacted them a year and a half ago. And at NIH Virology, when I contacted them again, they said, Paul, we'd love for you to submit samples, but you cannot submit natural products. We want pure molecules. How am I going to do that? 200,000 molecules. These are pharmaceutical companies that spend tens of millions of dollars to find one molecule. I don't have the resources. So, I guessed. Truly, I guessed. 200,000 molecules, I chose 20 molecules. And there's a good reason why I chose those molecules. As you'll see, from one point of view, it's kind of abstract. But we submitted the, mole the molecules, and our molecules then beat the pure positive drug controls in NIH virology of these positive drugs against flu, herpes, norovirus, hepatitis, pox, Ebola, and I just received this in the past two weeks, and this is against HPV. This is the direct report from NIH Virology, which the screen doesn't show it here. Highly active. One, two, three, four, five. Five of the molecules that I chose on my second set of ten beat the positive drug controls. There's really no good anti-HPV. HPV is a human papillomavirus that causes cervical cancer. There's a vaccine out, out for it. Many of you men have HPV and you give it to women. A lot of the women then develop uh, various types of cancer, but specifically cerv uh, a cervical cancer. So this is a quantitative polymerase chain reaction test. This is actually counting this. Maybe anything over 10 is active. And uh, this has a 12, so here's the next seven. Remember, anything over 10 is active. So Sidofovir, the positive drug control against the HPV virus, has a 12. And here is our, uh, our results here uh, against, against uh, the H HPV virus. I have to turn this over again. So our selectivity indexes are 60, 109, 30, 125, 125. Highly active. Of the 20 molecules that I submitted, nine of them are better than the pharmaceutical drug controls. How do you explain that? So I, I've been, for the past four weeks, I've been spending four to eight hours a day uh, writing another patent. 
I'm, I'm trying to submit the patent tomorrow. I'd like to submit it for Burning Man. It'd be great if I could. But this is paradigm shifting. I want to create a new entity called the Microverse and a new company called Micropharmaceuticals. And one branch of that Microverse is I Am, the Institute of Applied Mycology, which is a nonprofit, open source, multi generational foundation that will help the research continue of this because I think I found keys to a door to a kingdom of new active molecules, and they're all resident inside these extracts. So these extracts are a, a new reservoir of unexplored, highly active antiviral agents that are orally active and which are non-toxic. So I don't know how to explain this. I mean, is it, you know, as Louis Fester said, uh, uh, chance favors the prepared mind? Is it scientific intuition? Is it from all the psilocybin I've consumed in my life? I mean, but this, uh, this quantum leap is what a uh, leaps is what needed now. We are experiencing the edge of six X. We need to be able to have paradigm shifting discoveries, right, you know, that are executable, that are deliverable, that can be expanded uh, as soon as possible. I spent all my life doing this. So some people have a concern about patents. Well, if you write a book or build a house, do you want somebody else to take take uh, ownership of your book or move into your house? No. You know, you spend all your time on it. I want to control the intellectual property of this as we move forward. Yes. So, but, um, as, I mean, this is freaking incredible. How do you intuit 200,000 molecules to nine active new pharmaceuticals? And before NIH would accept any of these new molecules I submitted, they had to jury them to make sure they'd never been studied before because they didn't want to repeat somebody else's research. And that's meant to make sure the cytologists believe that this made sense. These molecules actually, you know, made sense that, you know, they're, they're, they're cell wall permeable. You know, so we met all those criteria. Okay, so I want to finish on another epiphany that's occurred. This goes back to deforestation, which is what I'm talking about, all these forest fungi. And 70% of our soils are composed of microbial mass, of which 40% of the mass is fungal. So we... we cut down the forests, we interrupt the carbon chain, the, uh, the decomposition cycles are interrupted, soil lenses are made thinner, monocropping of trees, it you know, causes, we're denaturing nature. So a friend of mine heard about my research with insects and said, Paul, what can you do about the bees? His name is Louis Schwartzberg, he's a really well-known filmmaker, a good buddy of mine. And the colony collapse disorder, the bees abandon the nest and they just don't come back. And the worker bees, live, uh, the foraging bees, when you see bees on flowers, it's the last days of their lives. The iris lifespan is between, uh, of, the, of the foraging bees, between two and 17 days. The average lifespan is 8.8 .8 days. Because of neonicotinoids, uh, glyphosates, because of uh, pesticides and insecticides, that 8.8 .8 average has been reduced to four days. And when the bees don't come back, the nurse bees, which are newly hatched bees, are taking care of the brood, they end up being prematurely recruited to become foraging bees, so they leave the brood behind to go get pollen. Because they don't have enough pollen coming back to make honey to feed the brood. So it's a doubling down. So what I'm gonna show you next now, and I tell you, I hope this is gonna work, okay? This is, a share, uh, this is showing on hundreds of PBS stations this, this week. 
So you're getting kind of an advanced copy of it. It showed on Oregon uh, Public Television uh, about four or five days ago. So we're going to watch a little movie. It's five minutes long, but it talks about our research with bees because I had this idea that, wow, if my extracts are antiviral and the mites are the big problem injecting viruses in the bees, what, well, what if our, our mushroom extracts that are helpful in reducing viruses in humans could be helpful in vi reducing viruses in bees? So I went to several universities, but I went to Washington State University, and they said, Paul, don't go anywhere else. This is too cool of an idea. So Dr. Steve Shepard that you'll meet here, he is the chief scientist, been studying bees for 40 or 40, uh, 45 years, as long as I've been studying fungi. And so here's a five-minute movie on PBS that's showing all over the country in the next few days. Well, they sort of got it right. They made a few little technical errors, but so this is what the varroa destructor looks like. And Steve's analogy of like a pancake on your back feeding is very appropriate and quite scary. And the, uh, they inject viruses. So the more mites, the more viruses, the more lethargy, the uh, immunologically depressed. If you're sick, you're not washing dishes, not cleaning the house, you know. So things, you know, uh, the, the, the hive in this case is not being kept as clean. Um, and this, again, it's a doubling down. So I was growing that garden giant mushroom that eliminated E. coli right on my property. And I had this garden bed out there in 1984, and I had two beehives, and I came out one time in July, and I looked down, and I couldn't believe what I saw, which was these bees were all over, specifically my two garden giant beds of mycelium. And they moved the wood chips aside to be like you moving a, a truck, you know, or a vehicle. And they exposed the mycelium. I looked very carefully, and I could see them sipping on little droplets of mycelium. Well, I got real excited about this. I thought, well, maybe they're getting for the sugars that are, you know, the polysaccharides, the mycelium. Uh, this is published in Harrowsmith Magazine. I put it in my one of my books, 1994, Growing Gourmet Medicinal Mushrooms. Virtually everybody ignored me. One beekeeper from Ontario, Canada, wrote me and said, well, maybe that's why bees go to sawdust piles in the summertime. So, when, and Louis Schwartzberg, the filmmaker, said, Paul, what can you do about the bees? I said, well, you know, I have this very strange experience with these bees, and I'm doing all this research with the BioShield and NIH reducing viruses. There maybe there's a connection here. So that was my epiphany, and I highly recommend. I have found that laying in bed in the morning, before you get out of bed, and you're in that ether state between sleep and wakefulness, that is a fertile time for invention. That is a fertile time to spend a few more moments, and you have these random thoughts, like dreams don't make sense, but in between that dream state and consciousness, you know, is a fertile time to come up with the cool ideas, and um, that's what I did. I lay in bed going, oh my God, I think I have a solution for colony collapse disorder. Let me pursue this. And so, we then, um, so, this is, uh, okay, so this is from a uh, use of, an, uh, of a pesticide, but the bees are dying for all the reasons that you heard, but loss of foraging habitat, deforestation I think is a big one, uh, and the bee nutrition, the parasites and the mites and the exposures of toxins. So here's a photo from Whole Foods. This is what your foods look like with bees. 
And if we had no bees, that's what your dairy selection would look like. The bees are under, the, the value of the contribution of bees is underestimated economically, you know, considering what the bees really do. So, um, thus I am the old growth forest. Now I'm going to put together three or four seemingly disparate experiences, but this is how epiphanies occur. We're in the old growth forest and bears scratch trees. Well, the timber industry killed hundreds of bears because the bear scratching trees led into polypore mushrooms. And so the bears scratch the trees and then the bees come after the resin for propolis. So there's all lots of bees here going after the, from the bear scratches on young firs and in the populaceae, willows in particular, and birch trees. So willows, birch trees, and young firs are what bees go after to get propolis, from, uh, especially when there's a wound in the tree and especially from bear scratches. So Dusty and I are hiking in the old growth forest. We go around the corner and she sees this first and said, oh my, oh my God, it's a, it's a bear strike on a tree. And that's the best bear strike I've ever seen. You know, I, I took a photograph of the deep in the whole uh, rainforest of Washington State. And then I said, wow, Dusty, you know, you know, this is what, why the hunters were killing the bears is because foamy topsis mushrooms come out of the bear scratches. So we found that interesting. So three years later, uh, we're hiking with my good friend, uh, our good friend David Price, who took us forever to find this. So this is the tree three years later. There's that same bear scratch. And this is actually the tree's broken off now. And sure enough, foamy topsis, uh, panicula, the red belted polypore, which is a sister species to agaricon, is growing out of that tree. So I well, oh, the forest service sort of got right. Bear scratches cause foamy topsis polypore mushrooms to grow. So, okay. Well, foamy topsis, I know, is antiviral against viruses that harm humans. So we started making extracts of 20 different mushroom species of the mycelium, the artist conch, Ganoderma apelatum, apelatum, Ganoderma resinaceum, this is Andy Weil, he's not resinaceum, but we started making extracts, and, um, and then I'm reading, I'm a voracious reader, thanks to Google Scholar Alerts, half my life is reading scientific articles now, I put too many keywords in our search engines, and so then this article comes out on a coumarin, well, remember against tuberculosis, agaricon? So, P-cumeric acid, it turns out, when they analyzed the honey uh, from beehives that had, had, had been abandoned from colony collapse disorder, uniquely in the honey, there is no P-cumeric acid. P-cumeric acid comes from mycelium. Mycelium is rotting wood. P-cumeric acid upregulates the genes coding for the cytochrome P450 pathway. All animals use it. It's what detoxifies compounds, mostly in your liver. But the bees only have uh, uh, 47 N, uh, genes coding for a cytochrome P450s. Most insects have 80. Humans have, have 60. So without P-cumeric acid, they would hyperaccumulate the toxins and they get malaise. Mites are biting them, injecting viruses in them. Deforestation on freeways to the almond orchards in the middle of the desert in California going hundreds of miles. All these other stressors. So P-cumeric acid comes from mycelium. And then looking at the other compounds, glyphosates are interfering with the microbiome inside the bee gut. 
And so the fungicide contamination that the, the farmers have been using reduces the beneficial fungi because the fungicides are killing the fungi. They're, otherwise, the bees would have access to. So they're not getting the P-cumeric acid also in that habitat. This is the majority of beekeepers feed sugar water, 50% sugar, 50% water. So, uh, you know, this uh, to the bees to, to keep them alive. And so we started making extracts. And then we came up with an extract, which is called mycohoney, all made from mycelium, no sugar added, and is this incredibly delicious syrup or honey that we've made from mycelium. So then we started then with Steve Shepard. We did 20 species. We narrowed it down to seven, and these are the sugar water being given to the bees. Uh, uh, and we diluted it diluted 1%, 0.1, and point, 10%, 1%, and 0.1%. And so the bees are sipping on this, this mushroom mycelium honey water. And this is from the artist conch, Ganoderma aplanatum, 10%. The bees love it. Steve was very concerned because, you know, I didn't want to make sure it didn't kill the bees. So there's a longevity stress test in captivity. And so the results of this I think, are incredibly cool. This is very spiritual, I think. The, the best fungi are all those that grow on birch trees. And they are Fomy Thompson's panicula, the one you saw that grow in the old, in the old growth forest, the hoe, grows on, on deciduous trees and conifer trees. Chaga, which grows on birch trees. Amadou, and the red reishi. And these two were involved in the BioShield program that had the production of the flu viruses and the relative of this one, Agaricon. And so longevity tests, and we found that when we add the extract, 1% solution of this Amadou mushroom, look at the significance factor here. The fact that this many more bees are alive uh, uh, means that they can forage more. And so statistically highly significant and Steve Shepard said, in 39 years of experience studying bees, I'm unaware of any reports to extend the life of bees this much. So we are activating the cytochrome P450 pathway. We are extending the, the livelihood of the bees. And so we started doing a viral uh, analysis. Well, let me, so here the, here's another uh, 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 chart showing the effect of Fomitopsis. The other one was Amadou. This is Fomitopsis panicula. This one here, again, high significance. And the more that we diluted it, 0.1%, uh, this is uh, one gram per thousand grams of our extract, incredibly potent. It tremendously increased the lifespan of the bees. And so then we looked at bee viruses with chaga, and sure enough, the control, the, uh, the bee viruses go up, and then with our extract, in a stepwise fashion, you know, the bee viruses go down. The second week is where the, the skyrockets. The fact it's going down substantially is very, very important. And then looking at the at the red reishi on the viral burden, we had a similar effect. The controls go up and they go to highly go down, especially in the week two. Uh, you know, giving the extract of the mycelium. So the synopsis of this is that we're able to the controls the uh, viruses go up and the B viruses plummet from exposure of all these wood rotting mushrooms that grow on birch trees. So, you know, that's where also the bees go for propolis, you know, into birch trees. So we all grew up with Winnie the Pooh. 
and I think I found something that I know, I, I give him talks at the National Bee Conference in front of a, a thousand mycologists, and I ask him, has anybody here ever heard anyone mention that bees go to rotted logs because of mycelium? We all grew up with Winnie the Pooh. We all knew that bears go after bees, bee, high, bee colonies and rotted logs, but we did a vast literature search and I filed a huge patent on this, the European Patent Agency. We paid pay one of their employees three or $4,000 for three months to use every search engine out there in every language to see if anyone has ever mentioned that bees go to mycelium. The only person they found was me. Hiding in plain sight. We don't know the way of the bee. Bees go to logs because of immunological benefit. Upregulating the cytochrome P450 pathway, the sugars, being able to reduce the viruses. So, humans, trees, bears, mushrooms, all terrestrial organisms that may involve be within the mycelial web of life, Earth's natural internet. And so we came up with a new sort of logo, let's be mushroom, let's be friendly. Scientists across disciplines need to work together. Biodiversity is our biosecurity. Thank you very much. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Now do you see what I mean about the magic of mycelium? The work that Paul and the other great mycologists of the world are working on is truly amazing. In fact, during the week of Halloween in 1999, in Brighton Bush, Oregon, there was a gathering of most of the current leaders in the field. And during the week of Halloween in 1999, in Brighton Bush, Oregon, there was a gathering of most of the then-current leaders in that field. Paul and Dusty were the primary organizers of the conference, and their instructions for items to bring included a sleeping bag, rain gear, hat and good hiking boots, mushroom hunting basket, coffee, and a costume for the Halloween ball. <laughs> we were assigned four to a cabin, a one-room cabin, and Bill Radizinski and his wife Maggie shared one with Mary C. and me. It was cold and damp much of the time, but the sun did come out for a few mushroom hunts. What I remember best about Brighton Bush, however, is the food that they served. It was, <laughs> it was without a doubt the worst food I can ever remember trying to eat. But uh, that's another story. However, the conference itself was really amazing. There were presentations to our relatively small crowd by Andrew Weil, Christian Roche, Gary Linkoff, David Aurora, Claudia Mueller, Jonathan Ott, Ken Kesey, Rick Strassman, Ann and Sasha Shulgin, Manuel Torres, and, of course, Paul Stamets as well. And as for the costume party on Saturday night, well, <laughs> I do remember having a good time, but the details are a bit fuzzy. You see, a few months earlier, after a hurricane in the south of the U.S., a new species of psychedelic mushroom was discovered. And if I remember correctly, it was uh, given a Latin name that sounded something like uh, Andrei, Wileyi, or something like that. 
Anyway, as I was told, it was named in honor of Dr. Andrew Wilde, with whom we had just been on a mushroom hunt the day before. At the party, the mushroom punch was alleged to have been made from those very same mushrooms. Now, I have no knowledge of who spiked, or made, I should say, the mushroom punch. There certainly were enough suspicious characters among the presenters themselves, not to mention the rest of us. But uh, for the most part, for a while at least, that was the end of Paul Stamets' semi-public association with the psychedelic side of mushrooms. And while based on where society is today in relation to psychedelic medicines, well, back in 1999, we were all very far from being able to openly talk about our attraction to this spiritual medicine. In fact, in January of that year, it was at the Entheobotany Conference in Palenque, Mexico, where I first met Paul. And yet, even back then, there was only one person where I worked that even had a hint of where I was and uh, what I was interested in. And that person was uh, actually with me at the time. <laughs> Those uh, not very long ago days were quite strange indeed. And for a good number of people, not just here in the U.S., but all over the planet, it is uh, still sometimes dangerous to express an interest in psychedelic experiences. So we need to always be supportive and discreet when it comes to others. Uh, their need to remain in the psychedelic closet for the time being. Anyway, uh, I had kind of forgotten about that great mushroom conference back in 1999 when I received an email from Paul asking if I could send him a better copy of a picture that was taken at the conference with all of us uh, on and around Ken Kesey's bus further. He said that he wanted to use it in the presentation that he was going to be giving at the upcoming Psychedelic Science 2017 conference. And I replied that the copy on my website, uh, which you can see in today's program notes at psychedelicsalon.com, well, that's the only copy I have. <laughs> but with a smile on my face, I also told him that I received the original from him. <laughs> However, uh, it was while searching for that photo for Paul on an old backup drive that I also found the talk that we just listened to. And when I discovered that it was a talk that Paul gave at Palenque Norte which, when my wife and I first began that lecture series at Burning Man, we named after the original Palenque Conference, the one where I first met Paul. Well, that seemed like enough of a synchronicity for me to play it today. I hope that you'll listen to this talk at least one more time, and please share it with your young friends who may have an interest in biology. We can use all of our best minds, joining in the work that Paul and many others have now begun. And for now, this is Lorenzo, signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>